Morning, friends. How we doing? Great. Great. So open our Bibles if you have one. I hope you do. Uh, if not, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you to Revelation chapter 16. This will be our last week in Revelation for a while, and we'll start moving through some psalms next week, and we'll start back up in August in this great book and finish it off, and we got a lot of fun things to get to still in Revelation. And I wanted to say, um, while you're turning there before you read, I planned to pray for our moms last week, and we got behind in the service, and I called an audible, and I didn't. So I want to do that this week, even though we are behind in our service again this week. So um, I know it feels weird. Maybe it's not Mother's Day anymore, but uh, I'm still going to take some time and pray for the moms today. So, yeah. Um, Let's read Revelation chapter 16, starting in verse 12. The seventh angel poured out... I'm sorry. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go go abroad to the kings of the whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word this morning, and uh, my heart is... um, it's, it's focused, and it's, it's, I've been thinking this week about our moms and how, how to pray for them. Um, what a beautiful, wonderful, God-given calling it is. Lord, the, the nature of being a mom and what um, they are called to really comes from you. It's, it's an aspect of your character. Even as the Apostle Paul said, he is uh, nurturing churches and people like a mother. Lord, we often think about the Father and we we associate, okay, we see that in in dads, but Lord, the goodness of motherhood really comes from the Trinity. It comes from the very character and heart of God. And and 
yeah, there's overlap, Lord, between a, a father and a mother as parents, but there are distinctions and differences, and we thank you for that, the beauty of that. And I pray for our moms that they might embody the truth and the beauty of motherhood mainly by coming to know you better. That their pursuit of you, their pursuit of God would be the greatest help in mothering. Lord, I pray they would be encouraged that everyday faithfulness in small things in their homes is the way to shut the mouth of the devil. It is the most powerful way to push back on the things that are scary and wrong and evil in this world. Simple moments, small moments that add up over time that often the enemy would love for them to be discouraged in. It doesn't matter. It's not important. It's not significant. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Lord, I pray that they would be women of the Word, that they would know Your Word, that they would come to embody it, to beautify it, to express it in manifold ways in any and all seasons, that they would be very truly women shaped and formed by the Word of God. Lord, I pray for you to put wind in their sails through the gospel, that their identity is not in their calling, any calling, but particularly motherhood. Lord, that, that, that any woman, this is not who she is. She is in Christ. She is a Christian first. She is in you for something that can never be taken away, can never change, is solid and secure. I pray that the gospel would motivate and help them to continue on, to endure, that they have been so loved, so cherished, that they might pass that love and cherishing on to their children. Lord, I pray for women who want to be mothers and aren't, or that if it is your will, you would grant that good desire, and if it is not, you would grant them contentment and trust in you, that a rich, full, significant life in the end, is not bound up with being married or having kids. Those are wonderful blessings, but Lord Jesus, you lived the most happy and fulfilled life of any human being ever, and you did not have either of those things. So we ask for your grace in their life. Lord, I pray for the ladies here who feel a strong sense of failure in their motherhood whether their kids are grown and out of the house and they're looking back or they're in the trenches right now, um, I pray that they would gaze upon the finished righteousness of Jesus Christ given to them by faith. I pray that they would gaze upon the doctrine of election, that it is your sovereign will in the end which sinners go to heaven and that that responsibility is not ultimately on them. Thank you that we are freed from that burden. We want to be faithful in our parenting, Lord. And I pray if they have sins to confess and seek forgiveness, they would do that. But otherwise, they would rest in the God of all salvation and that their kids are in your capable hands. Lord, I pray for ladies who have been hurt by their mom, who have not had good relationships Pray, Lord, that they would not associate that with you. That is not your heart. That is not who you are. 
and that they could, out of the abundance of the forgiveness they have received, so also forgive their mom. Help them to know this is not what their story has to be. They do not have to be just like their parents. For all of us, Lord, that we would take any good that we can and we would leave the bad and you would grant us wisdom and discernment and courage to do that, but also hope that we are not destined to repeat the same mistakes. And I pray if some feel that today, hopeless, discouraged, that they're going to end up just like their parents, that you would push back against that lie by the power of the Spirit. That it is not true. And change and transformation generationally can be very, very real. So Lord, we lift them up to you. We love them. We thank them for their service and their faithfulness. And we pray for strong moms, strong families, strong homes that are raising children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord to go out and be pillars in this crazy world that we live in. And now we ask your blessing on the preaching of your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Here we are, the final two bowls of God's wrath. With them, his wrath in this first creation is finished. It's over. In hell, in the lake of fire, God's wrath will continue for all eternity. His presence there to judge will continue. So that's not what we mean, that people are going out of existence. There's no more wrath um, for for anyone uh, in hell. No, that goes on forever and will exist for all eternity. But in the new creation, in the new creation, for those who love him, no more wrath. This is it. Because there will be nothing to be angry about. (laughs) There will be no, no sin. So why would there be wrath? God's wrath has an expiration date. As we read, it is done. It is done. Why does that matter for you now? Like, great, I believe it. Makes sense. I see it in the Bible. Like, But I got to get up and go to work tomorrow. I, I, I got things to do. I got... Uh, hearts of my kids to shepherd. I have bills to pay, um, dishes to do, difficult people to be with. What does the last battle have to do with my life? Why is this important? Isn't this something way out in the future? Does it really matter for us today? What's the point? I would contend that it has everything to do with your life. It had meaning for those who originally heard it for them in their day. It has meaning for us in our day. Let me just highlight a couple things. For some of you, it means you need to be more passionate about evil and injustice. Because clearly, God is very passionate. Some of you are just too passive. You yawn at things that God sends people to hell for. It's just not a big deal. You see evil, injustice, corruption, so. And it's like, what's on Netflix? Is there a bush light in the fridge? What are we doing tonight? Are we just hanging out? That is not God's response to those things. And we think, well, what am I going to do about it? 
What's the point? Imagine if everyone thought that way. If everyone said someone else will pray about it, someone else will do so, someone else will care. You need to join God in his anger at evil, at abuse, at human trafficking, at corruption, false doctrine. You need to join God in his anger at death. Friends, you should feel something. You should feel something. When you encounter moral evil, that means that you are morally alive. If you don't feel anything, it's not a good sign. You should feel, I want to. Now, we have capacities. We have limits. I'm not saying you have to do everything you possibly could do. I'm saying I should feel, I want to change that. I want to help someone who is hurt by this. God's judgments in Revelation remind us. I mean, it's so clear. There is a real dissatisfaction with sin. Our sin, the sin of others, it is not okay. It's not okay. The cross of Jesus Christ reminds us that sin is not okay. Look no further. Not in you, not in your kids, not in your parents, not in your friends, not in your coworkers. And some of you treat it like it's normal. Sin is the most profoundly abnormal thing in the universe. It is a violation, a cosmic violation of yourself, of God, and others. And we're just like, eh, eh. As a Christian, your sanctification reminds you how seriously God takes sin. He is doing surgery on you again and again and again, removing each tumor from your heart, and you got a lot of them. Slowly but surely, doing the work, God means business, he's serious about sin, that's what sanctification is. Becoming more like God, free of sin. The last battle, for some of you, means that you need to take these things more seriously. On the other hand, for some of you, the last battle means you need to chill out. You need to take a breath because God be handling it, okay? He knows what he's doing. Every news story, every mess in the house, every person uh, who doesn't do exactly what they're supposed to do should not be a five-alarm fire. And you're the fireman. Give me that hose. I'm just hosing you down, baby. We're going to fix this. That's how we think sometimes. Give me that hose, God. I'm going to take care of this. You're just hosing people down. We're going to fix it, baby. We're going to get serious. We're going to deal with this every problem, every situation. You can't tie your shoe in less than 10 seconds. Kids. I don't know if that's what a fire hose actually sounds like or even like that's the right. Where are my firemen? They're just laughing at me. I think it is right. I think it is right. I'm going to go with it. Chill out. God is handling it. This book should convince you God knows how to deal with things. He will set all things right. You don't need to grab the fire hose out of his hand and be the fireman putting out every fire. Some of you need to hear that. Hear this blessed word, trust. Trust. 
You can join God in His work, but you don't have to be God. You can care about change in others, but you don't have to fix them. You have the privilege of doing good without any pressure. God will set all things right. We know that. This is true. And that should instill great patience and great peace in your heart. He will set all things right. So do you you see, I mean, that feels like a tension to us. I, I need to be active. I need to be engaged in doing good. But I don't have the pressure of making things right. And that's the tension that we live in. And you have to know what you're prone to, what, 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 where you tend to go, typically. And pray toward moving back to a balanced human responsibility, God's sovereignty. So I'm just like scratching the surface of why this is relevant. That's just like a couple of things. This is so relevant. It's not way out there, far and fancy, fairy tale land. This is so relevant for everything you're going through. Let's get into it. Two bowls to cover today. I'll just call them the last battle and the last judgment. The last battle. God is moving the pieces on the chessboard. He is ordaining that all evil would be gathered, assembled, so he can wipe it out. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. In the Old Testament, God drying up the Euphrates is associated with the destruction of his enemies and the deliverance of his people. It's actually a river that's mentioned a lot in the Old Testament. Particularly, it is a prelude to the judgment and defeat of Babylon which is interesting because Babylon appears a lot in Revelation. I don't believe this is a literal drying up of this river. It is a prelude to a battle. It is a sign of the battle. Not that we're going to be checking the water levels, okay? What John is communicating through the imagery and what they would have heard if you know your Old Testament, okay, a battle is coming. If the Euphrates is drying up, because that did happen in the Old Testament. A battle is coming. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, so there's your false trinity, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, according to the Torah, frogs were unclean animals. They had no fins, no scales, unclean, stay away from them. A fitting symbol for teaching that is filthy. And if you have frogs around, you know the croaking is loud, it's meaningless, and it's infuriating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just came to my mind. Last summer when we were on sabbatical, uh, the house that we were staying in in Arizona had frogs that are like mating all summer, and they're croaking loud from about 8 o'clock at night until, I don't know, we could hardly go to sleep. And we tried to find them. We couldn't find them. It was just infuriating. So when you hear frogs croaking, think of false teaching. That's what I want you to think of when you hear that. It's like, that's what false teaching is, maybe to God's ears. 
It's just nasty. It's, it's filthy. It's infuriating. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to kings of the whole earth to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. We'll come back to verse 15. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Let's slow down here. At the end of the thousand years, and we may disagree on when that is, uh, I believe that we're in the thousand years right now. Some Christians believe it's still in the future. But at the end of it, Revelation 20 clearly tells us, there will be a great battle. Like so many of the books and movies and stories that we love, all the forces of darkness will be gathered against those who stand for good. God and his people. So if you think of like Lord of the Rings, okay, this is the nine witch kings leading their hordes, the, 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 you know, the goblins, the trolls, the orcs, uh, the Nazgul, all these, they're all gathering okay, to, to oppose and try to destroy the returning king. I mean, that, when we see that in a movie or a book, this is where you get it. This is where it comes from. We can't get away from it because it's true. It's going to happen. That's what's happening. False trinity leading all demonic spirits, all kings, all rulers aligned with the beast to assemble in the belief that they will wipe us out. Infinitely proud, they believe that they are actually going to defeat God. They believe that they have a chance against God himself. But the text tells us, and we know this, God is in total control. What he does is he uses their pride to draw them in so he can wipe them out. It's bait. Many Old Testament passages allude to this battle, um, which are picked up by John. He's thrown in all kinds of Old Testament here. Okay, Uh, Zechariah, Isaiah, uh, and one in particular is Ezekiel 38 and 39. And let me just read you a couple choice passages from those two chapters. And you just listen for what you heard today and what God put in Ezekiel 38-39. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. So this is representing God's enemies. John actually brings up Gog and Magog in Revelation 20. And I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. And I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host. So God, through pride, puts hooks in their jaws. He hooks them and he pulls them and draws them into this great battle. In another place it says he puts thoughts into their heart. Which basically means he just lets them do what they want to do, which is oppose him. From the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel's, you shall fall. You and all your hordes and the people who are with you, I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Boy, that sounds a lot like Revelation 16, 19, 20. 
hooks in their jaws. No more patience. No more common grace. All people, all systems opposed to God are gathered into one place and they're going to be slaughtered. I mean, we're not even to the worst of it in this book. The imagery of the slaughter. At the place of Armageddon. What is Armageddon? In Hebrew, this is two words. Har, mountain, and Megiddo. It's a city just north of Jerusalem. So Mount of Megiddo is what, really, if you want to say it, it's Harmageddon with an H. That's really the Hebrew. Except there is no Mount Megiddo. I think that's a clue. John is leaving that this is not intended to be a literal place because there isn't that literal place. What he's drawing on is Israel's history. Megiddo was a place where Israel was attacked by its enemies many times. Many wicked nations came there and fought. And at Armageddon, the church will be attacked by the dragon and his forces, and they will throw everything they have at you. They will throw it all. Okay, false teaching within the church. Um, economic pressure, political pressure. Uh, some of you may be martyred. Christians will be martyred at that time. They will throw everything they have at you. But you know what? Who's going to show up? Our champion, the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus will come on a white horse with a sword and fire will come down from heaven. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like, he's going to win. Okay? You don't have to be afraid. He's going to win. And it's, it's like not even going to be a battle. I mean, it will, but it won't. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, the Celtics playing the, the, the Madison JV team. It's like, okay, yeah, it's a game, but is it really a game? It's going to be over pretty quick. It's not like, well, you know, this is a rivalry. No, it's not. It's not even fair. But that's the hubris, that's the pride, that's the ego of those who think that they can actually stand up to God and win. God's got it all planned. And they will know that He is the Lord. What you're not supposed to do is try to figure out when that's going to happen. This is a trap Christians fall into. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're not, you know... You're not supposed to be reading the newspaper looking for signs. The, the water level in the Euphrates is a foot lower. What does that mean? There's an army invading from the north. What does that mean? Is it Armageddon? No. That is not what John intends for you to be doing. That is not what God wants you to be doing. He simply wants you to be ready. We don't know. But be ready. Verse 15, very important. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Notice the switch to the first person. Jesus grabs the mic from John. John, give me that. Okay, thank you. And he just talks to you. Addresses you directly. I am coming back. 
I am returning. Be ready. Don't fall asleep. When I was, uh, <laughs> when Carrie was pregnant with Piper, her first baby, um, her water broke, and we went to the hospital, and they were like, no, your water didn't break, go home. And, of course, like, that first time was in the afternoon. It would have been a wonderful time to have a baby. Like, you know, why does it always happen in the middle of the night? And then, so we waited, waited, then her water really broke, and we went back in, and it's kind of like late at night. And so the labor is progressing slowly, um, and I decided maybe this is a good time for a siesta for me. You know, like, I'm a little tired too, you know. I've, I've been doing stuff. So I'm going to lay down. I'm going to take a little napski. So I fall asleep, and I wake up to things being thrown at me. I think I got hit in the head with a shoe. I don't know how someone in labor throws a shoe, but it happened. And I wake up, and I'm like, what's going on? The baby's coming. The baby's coming, and two minutes later, there's Piper. She arrived. I almost missed it, okay? And the nurse is giving me that look like, you're going to be a bad father. I know it. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) It's not off to a good start. Don't be like that. Don't miss the big moment because you fell asleep. Spiritually speaking, that's what Jesus is trying to tell you. Stay awake. Stay alert. Be ready. And that's probably what I should have done. How do we do it? How do you stay awake? Three thoughts. Commit, talk, and eat. Number one, commit. Big part of staying awake when you are tired is just deciding to, choosing to. The same is true spiritually. Don't put off becoming a Christian. Don't wait. Don't put it off. And people say this to me at times in my life. I think I will become a Christian, but I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready to give up my sin. I kind of like doing this. I like doing that. I'm not ready. Don't wait because you do not know. Who knows when a thief is going to break into their house? If you knew that, you wouldn't be concerned. But you don't. That's the whole point, why you need to stay alert. That's why you need to stay with Lock your doors. Don't assume you have time. You have no idea. Don't wait. Don't wait. Choose to follow Jesus. Choose to wake up. And all you're waking up to is peace, joy, hope, eternal life. That's pretty good. Don't play around. That's what Jesus is saying, I think, in the strongest terms. Stay awake. Be ready. Don't play around. Number two, talk. Helps to talk on a long drive, doesn't it? It's like, I need someone there, I just got to have some conversation, or else if I'm just alone, I need a podcast, I need something going, I need to talk. Um, We're on a journey home, sometimes we get weary, sometimes life is hard, and it really helps to talk about the return of Jesus. It helps to talk about what's coming, it helps to sing about the promised land. Does it? Doesn't it? I mean... I just don't think we do that enough. 
I think we get very focused on this world, this life, and in some ways, yes, we need to be, but guys, this is not it, and we need to talk about it. That will help you stay awake. So let it permeate your dinner conversations. Let it permeate your prayers. How often do you pray when you're with your family about the return of Jesus? How often do you anticipate it? How often do you bring out different facets of it? God, this is our Christmas morning that we are waiting for. How excited are your kids about Christmas morning? They got the calendar in the room. They're marking off the days. They're talking about their presents. They're talking about our gifts. Adults, let's outdo them in being excited and anticipating Jesus' return. Amen? Can we do that? Make it a rule in your home, okay, that you have to talk about Jesus returning just as much as you have to Christmas Day and Christmas morning, the presents. That will help you stay awake if you talk about it. If you don't, you'll fall asleep. Number three, eat. I know my wife really well, and if she's getting sleepy and groggy, 90% of the time, she just needs to eat. And I know that about her. When's the last time you ate? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. Okay, we need to eat. And she perks right up. It's amazing, like within seconds. And the same is true for us spiritually. We need to eat. This is your spiritual disciplines. God's feeding tubes, prayer, the word, Sunday worship, meditation, memorization, fellowship. We need it all. Good books. The enemy wants to lull you to sleep with entertainment, activities, work, 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 work. Shh, just go to sleep. It's too hard to pray. It's too difficult. Do something more productive with your morning. Get going on the chores. You don't need to do that. Shh. Go to sleep. That's what he wants. He wants to tell you that everything is more important than that. You don't have time for that. Does God really even hear your prayers? Is it really even going to make a difference? Just go to sleep. Have some entertainment. Have another activity. Work a little harder. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You will not stay awake. You cannot stay awake without spiritual food. This is God's food that you need. Bonhoeffer says it this way. In your spiritual disciplines, God's word seeks to enter in and remain with us. It strives to stir us, to work and operate in us, so that we shall not get away from it the whole day long, often without our being conscious of it. you probably don't remember every meal you eat. A lot of you don't remember what you had for breakfast today. And that's fine. You don't have to have amazing mountaintop quiet times every day. 
You don't have to have unbelievable devotions. We're like, what did you read this morning in your Bible? And you're like, well, I have it memorized. Let me tell you. You don't have to do that. You can be like, oh, I don't really remember, but it was good. It's just a meal. And your body unconsciously uses food and converts it into energy, even though you don't remember, I don't know, did I even eat? Well, yeah. The same is true spiritually. God will work through your faithfulness in these areas, even unconsciously converting it into spiritual energy. Does that make sense? I think you've, we feel pressure. That, like, if somebody asked me how my devotions were, first of all, like, I don't even want to hear that question because if I didn't have it now, I really feel guilty. And if I did, they're like, well, what'd you read? And you're like, so I got to go. You know, I got some things to do. Good to see you. God doesn't want you to feel that pressure. He will work through your faithfulness. Five minutes, ten minutes, a long one if you, if you have time. I mean, but the point is, what's the habit? What's regular? What's, what's just like you need three meals a day or you need to eat at some point during the day? You need that spiritually. Stay awake. Stay alert. Okay, the final judgment. Seventh bowl. We've seen these images uh, in this section already in Revelation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. Um, we're going to see him again in chapter 19, chapter 20, ending of the old world. So this is just the end of the world is the picture. Consummation of the new world. Verse 17, we'll read it. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and and a great earthquake such as there never had been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city, Babylon, split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Can you think of another moment in the Bible where Jesus says something like, it is done? Can you? It is finished? Jesus set this all in motion on the cross. When he took the wrath of God on himself that was meant for you, he started the clock. He started the clock when the curtain tore in two, when his precious blood was spilled to make a way for sinners to be with God forever. And thousands of years later, whenever this day is, the buzzer will sound. And the story of redemption will be over. It is done. Praise God. We live, friends, between it is finished and it is done. That's where we live. And yet, I think many of you, Christians, still think God is mad at you. I, I think you feel a nagging sense that maybe it isn't finished. For me, anyway. Now, for these other people, okay, but, but I'm not sure for me. And you have a nagging sense that 
God is not pleased with you. In fact, that most days he's pretty disappointed. Not kind enough, didn't, didn't pray enough, uh, you know, supposed to pray without ceasing. I mean, mm, didn't read my Bible enough, didn't share the gospel enough, didn't do enough, 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 enough. And you think you need to add something in order to gain God's love. You're not living from God's approval. You're living for it. Instead of enjoying his love, you're laboring to earn it. That is not what Jesus died for. For you to finish things off yourself. The gospel is not a help wanted sign, praise God. It is not. I'm going to get you most of the way there, but you help me finish it off. No, you don't have to add anything to what Jesus did. The gospel says you are added to what he did. It is not something more. It is already there. No one can be more obedient. No one can be more righteous. No one can be more perfect. No more sins can be forgiven than what has been forgiven for God's people. So it's a matter of believing it. Do you believe it? For you. For you. Listen to me. If you are in Christ, when you wake up in the morning, the only thing waiting for you is new mercies. The only thing. When you wake up in the morning, you know what God's heart is for you? Every single day, steadfast love. That's it. How often do you wake up in the morning and that is not how you feel? That is not what you think. You're not in a courtroom anymore. You're in the family room. Some of you keep walking back to the courthouse every day. You just, you know, God goes over there. He's very nice. He sees you dawdling along in the courthouse. And no, no, no. Come on back. Come on back home. And he sets you down in the family room. He says, pats you on the head, says, I love you. Stay here. You're, you're my family. You're my beloved. Okay, I'm going to go over here, but stay here. And we stay there for a while, maybe. But then we start thinking, I don't deserve to be here. I'm a mess. God doesn't want someone like me in his family, someone like me in his house. And we get up and we walk back to the courthouse and we start judging ourselves for things God has forgiven us. We start telling ourselves we're guilty when God has pronounced us righteous and just. What's the answer? You must look away from you. You must look away from you and look at Jesus Christ over and over and over and over again. All you're going to find here is a garbage dump. It stinks. But what you're going to find there, when you look at him, beauty. Perfection. 
that by faith is now yours. I need you to hear that. I need you to understand that. It is looking outside yourself. Not analyzing yourself. You are not your life. Christ is your life. Luther says it this way. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to say, I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? What of it? Does this mean I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where He is, there also I will be. I need to memorize that. That's what you say when your heart accuses you. That's where you go when the devil accuses you. To Jesus Christ, He is your life, not you! And praise God for that. We're in the family room. We're not in the courtroom. We don't wake up to a judge. We wake up to a father, to a son, and to a helper. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to train our minds and our hearts to focus on the objective, unchanging, eternal gospel. Lord, our, our, our feelings, are, they change moment to moment. Our subjective thoughts, they're just that. They're subjective. We can't rely on them, but we can rely on your promises. We can rely on the truth of the gospel. We can rely on your character that you have made a promise, a swore an oath to us that we will inherit Everything won and purchased by Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I pray for those struggling to believe it. That a little bit more this week, they would. And it might bring peace to their minds and to their hearts. It might bring solace to their busy, fretful, anxious souls. Heal us, Lord, that we may be healed. In your name.